great time this weekend. If you're wondering if I'm tired about the, from the men's retreat, yes. Worth it, but tired. Uh, we had a great time. Uh, I've never been to Cedarwood. It's a cool place. Um, and we, we, had, we discussed, I think it's relevant because uh, we talked about we, that we desired to be men who love the gospel, who repent of our sin, and then also share the gospel with one another uh, and with our world. And so for wives who were not on the retreat, make sure to ask your husband about what, he, uh, what we learned and discussed this weekend. Um, yeah, I'm really excited even that uh, what Aaron just announced about our learning cohort is something that uh, really feeds into exactly the kind of stuff that we talked about, that we don't want to just keep uh, the fruit that we've received in the gospel to ourselves, and we want to share it freely, because we really want to be about replicational discipleship, that uh, the, gospel, the, the gospel chain does not stop with us. Uh, and I think that's also really what we're going to be discussing uh, in our text today, which uh, is a beautiful story of a very unlikely evangelist. Now, I know that every time Aaron gets up here, he emphatically asserts that this text in John is his favorite text, whatever text it is. I will not be so emphatic now. However, this text truly is one of my favorite stories in the Gospel of John. Uh, and so I am very excited to preach it. And it is, it is truly an amazing moment, and I would even say quite a high point in the story of John's Gospel. Uh, by the way, I haven't introduced myself. My name is Chris, and uh, happy that you're here if you're new to trails. Uh, so the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman is it's a significant one. It is, it's actually the longest conversation we have in any of the Gospels, uh, and we can see that it is a long conversation. We, we've got 45 verses to truck through today, so please bear with me because we have a lot to cover uh, because this story is not just long, it is also dense. Uh, I mean, this text is just an absolute clinic on evangelism. Uh, this story shows us so much about the importance, need, and beauty of evangelism, and should spur us on to share the gospel with those who do not know Christ. There really is a ton happening here that I want us to see and understand. But in order to do that well, I want us to get our bearings and see where we are headed. So, again, bear with me. We are going to read our whole text for today, and then we'll get into it. Sounds good, everybody? Great. Beautiful. So, uh, if you would please open your Bibles to John chapter 4, uh, and we will get started at verse 1. John chapter 4. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said, said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, 
I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with the woman. But no one said, to him, said what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to him, My food, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are four, yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in, in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, because we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. After the two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that no prophet has no honor in his, his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, and having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. Father, we ask now that you would, you would use the preaching of your word in the transformation of hearts. Father, thank you that we can rest on the promise that your word does not return void. Lord, thank you for the story of this woman. What an encouragement she is to me and to many throughout the history of our church and of the church. Lord, it is so beautiful that just like her, we were just as unlikely to have ever been saved. But Lord, you transform and change trajectories of people's lives. And so, Father, I pray that you would do that in our city and that many might be saved through it. And Lord, I pray that as we discuss this and, and learn from, your, from this text, Lord, would you, would you encourage us in our, in our desire and, and need to preach the gospel to our neighbors and friends and family? And Lord, we ask that you would uh, help us to even begin to share how you are working in us through uh, what you're doing in our lives. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Alrighty, folks. Thank you for bearing with me through this text. I mean, but what a story. What a story. And it's got such a happy ending, too. I love that. On the surface, this interaction doesn't seem really all that special. But as we will see, Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well is both category-breaking and culture-breaking. And the result of the conversation is really a moment of celebration. On his journey... Jesus speaks to a seemingly random, unimportant Samaritan woman at a well, reveals to her that he is the Messiah, share, she shares the testimony of her conversation with Jesus, and many in the town of Sychar 
come to faith in Jesus as Messiah. That's amazing. Don't let the familiarity of the story help make you forget the fact that that is an amazing thing. And these are not Jewish people. These are Samaritans. So what we have here in in John chapter 4 is the first prototype example of cross-cultural missions in the life and ministry of Jesus. And as a result, this unnamed Samaritan woman becomes one of the first, if not the first, evangelists in New Testament history. Now, why should that be cause for our excitement and wonder? And how should this story of evangelistic success encourage us to share the gospel with others? Well, let's see. First, I'd like to draw your attention to the very beginning and end of our text for today. Note that Galilee is mentioned in verse 3 and again in verses 43 through 45. We see at the beginning of our text that Jesus decides to leave the Judean countryside and head back to Galilee. In our text from last week, there is a conversation with John the Baptist addressing uh, John's waning popularity and Jesus' growing popularity. Here in verse 1 of chapter 4, we see that the Pharisees are aware of this as well. You may recall when I preached on the second half of chapter 1 that John the Baptist was interrogated by some officials sent by the governing religious council of the Jews, the Sanhedrin, as part of their formal investigation process to scope out possible messianic movements. And so as they see John the Baptist fading into the background and Jesus' ministry moving to the foreground, they are keen to begin their investigation into Jesus' ministry. However, as we see in the beginning of chapter 4, Jesus is not all that interested in entertaining the Pharisees' questions and decides to leave Judea and head back to Galilee. And by the end of our text today, we see in verses 43 through 45, Jesus and his disciples make it back to Galilee. So that means this whole story from verses 4 to 42 is what happens on the journey back to Galilee. However, I want to draw our attention to something else here. The locations mentioned thus far in John are actually really important. See, when was the last time Jesus was in Galilee? All the way back in the beginning of chapter 2, at the wedding in Cana. So from from chapter 2, verse 13, all the way to the beginning of chapter 4, Jesus has been in the region of Judea. And look back at the begin and look at the beginning of our text for next week. Where does Jesus go? He's back in Cana. The first and the second miraculous signs in John's gospel both occur in Cana of Galilee. And that is by no coincidence. I point that out to say that the Apostle John has intentionally linked these two stories by their location in order to help the readers understand that chapter 2, verse 1, all the way to chapter 4, verse 54, is meant to be understood as one large literary unit in the story of the gospel. He bookends this literary unit with two stories of Jesus' signs that both take place in Cana. Now, why does he do this? Well, he does this for several reasons, which I will let Pastor Aaron uh, address next week. But one of the reasons that John has created this section in his book is that John has used these bookends to help frame the content between them. You're following me here? John has bookended this unit of of content to frame what is in between them. Well, what is he intending to highlight in this section from the beginning of chapter 2 all the way to the end of chapter 4? think that John is intending to frame the many ways different kinds of people respond to Jesus's ministry. How different people are responding differently to Jesus's ministry. And because of that, I think one of the things we need to keep in mind as we study the story of the Samaritan woman is that John wants his readers to compare this conversation with Jesus with the conversation in chapter 3 between Jesus and Nicodemus. Just at first glance, what do we see in that comparison? On the one hand, we have this incredibly learned man, a ruler of the Jews, 
a Bible college president, accomplished and notable in every way, and he doesn't get it. And on the other hand, we have this unnamed, unimportant, illiterate Samaritan woman, and she gets it. She believes in Jesus, and Nicodemus does not. This comparison alone should reiterate the point to us again that God is the one who causes to be born again. He alone is the one who saves. So it does not matter who you are, how much you know, or what you've done, because on the surface, one who had every advantage, and the other hand, the one who had no advantage, it doesn't matter. God is the one who saves. So again, keep this comparison in mind as we continue in our text. Now again, to avoid confrontation with the Pharisees at this point in his ministry, Jesus returns to Galilee. But on this three-day journey, Jesus and the disciples stop in the town of Sychar in Samaria. Now, if you are unfamiliar with the geography here, just to briefly get you up to speed, at this time in the history of the land of Israel, it was largely made up of three Roman districts, Judea in the south, Galilee in the north, and then Samaria right in, in the between them on the west side of the Jordan River. However, I find it so interesting that it says in verse 4 that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Had to pass through. Now, what's interesting about this is that there is no geographic necessity for this. Some Jews, in their zeal, would actually cross the Jordan and go the long way around Samaria because they just wanted to avoid going through it. So the only necessity for Jesus passing through Samaria was providential necessity. As Jesus says in verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And we will continue to see that as a major theme in John, in, in John is Jesus accomplishing the will of the Father. And here we see just another specific example of that. Jesus had to travel through Samaria because of the will of the Father directed him there. He had an appointment with a Samaritan woman, and he was not going to be late. Now, just by verse 7, we already get a sense of some of the oddity about this story. First, we see from the end of verse 6 that it was about the sixth hour. Now, your Bible might have some, a footnote there. Your footnotes are helpful and important. Check them out. It might have a footnote that it clarifies that the sixth hour is about noon. Uh, the Jewish way of keeping time was to count uh, the hours from sunrise. So sunrise about 6, 6 a.m., the sixth hour makes it about noon. So at about noon, this woman leaves the town by herself to draw water at Jacob's well. Now before we learn anything about this woman's complicated life, this should clue us into something, kind of being off about this woman's standing in her community. Drawing the day's need of water was something done by the women in the morning. Uh, it was a communal activity. The women of the town are all likely going together. And here we have this woman in the heat of the day, endangering herself by going alone, gets water from the well at noon. But then upon reading what Jesus reveals about her life, we can, we can sort of put two and two together here. Uh, this, woman, this woman is an outcast. Uh, she is the unsavory woman whom people whisper about as she walks by. The woman who has been married five times brings a lot of undesired notoriety in a tiny village in Samaria. Although I admit that it is not explicitly stated in the text, I believe the details point to the fact that the woman is an outcast, a pariah who draws her water at noon all alone. But our inciting moment of action is also in verse 7, which is the culture-breaking request of Jesus, asking this woman for a drink. Now, many have pointed out that it was outside of cultural norms for a Jewish man, especially a rabbi, to ask a woman for a drink. Uh, it would have been expected for his disciples to do this, which is why John had to clarify in verse 8 that they were not there. But what is more significant is that Jesus, as a Jew, asks her as a Samaritan for a drink, which is exactly what the woman is shocked by in verse 9. And John supplies, as the reason for this, that Jews 
have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, it's so wild to me that in one parenthetical statement, John summarizes centuries of animosity between Jews and Samaritans. Well, for one thing, that is all that is needed. Uh, from this, we learn that there are, two groups of, there are two groups of people that don't like each other, so they don't do business with each other, and they don't even break bread together. It was unthinkable for a Jew to indebt himself to a Samaritan. But as I have mentioned in the past, understanding history is very helpful in our study of Scripture. More often than not, it is not essential, as the plain meaning of the text can be understood without it. However, I believe that understanding cultural and historical backgrounds allows us to understand the meaning of the text with greater nuance and clarity. It, to me, it's kind of like watching a, like a movie on an old television and then seeing the same movie in like HD or in an IMAX theater. You can certainly enjoy the movie and understand the plot on the old TV, even though it might be kind of grainy or pixelated. But then seeing it again in greater quality enhances your appreciation and enjoyment of the movie. I believe understanding historical background does something very similar for us. So then, who were the Samaritans? Who were these folks? We just know that they hated, they hated each other. So why was there so much hatred between them and the Jewish people? Now, centuries earlier, back in the days of the divided kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel was taken into captivity by the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrians then sent their own people to resettle the land of the northern kingdom, the capital of which was Samaria. Now, these Gentile people intermarried with the remaining Israelites in the lands of the northern kingdom. These people became the ancestors of who would become known as the Samaritans that we read about here in the New Testament. So first, we see that part of the reason for this animosity was ethnic division. The Samaritans were a people of mixed ethnicity, uh, of both Jew and Gentile ancestry, for which the Jewish people saw them as unclean, just as they would any other Gentile. But the other aspect of their mutual hatred had to do with the consequences of this blending of cultures. Over the centuries, the Samaritans had blended the worship of Yahweh with the pagan practices of their Gentile ancestors. And even though by the first century the Samaritans were monotheistic, only worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the influence of pagan religion led to some very serious errors. One major difference between the Samaritans and the Jews was that the Samaritans rejected almost the entire Old Testament, only holding sacred the five books of Moses, called the Torah or the Pentateuch. So they read Genesis to Deuteronomy, but rejected everything from Joshua to Malachi. Now, one of the consequences from this is actually referenced in our text today, that the Samaritans also rejected Jerusalem as the place where God commanded his people to worship him. This woman mentions in verse 20 that the Samaritans worshiped on this mountain, but the Jewish people worshiped in Jerusalem. Now, the mountain she is referring to is called Mount Gerizim, now, Jacob's well, where uh, the well that they met at, Jacob's well is practically at the foot of this mountain. Uh, so when she says this mountain, she literally means that mountain. Uh, so the Samaritans chose this mountain because of its frequent mentions throughout the Torah. But specifically in Deuteronomy 27, when God chooses it as the mountain of blessing when the Jewish people re-enter or enter the promised land. And the few Samaritans alive today worship on this mountain to this very day. So from this, we learn that the other reason for the strong division of these peoples is actually theological. Now, to our modern ears, this likely doesn't sound like something all that serious. But let's look at this from the perspective of what we call theological triage, where we have tertiary, secondary, and primary issues in the center. So in terms of old covenant theological triage, where one ought to worship Yahweh was an issue of primary first order importance. This is a serious error on a heretical level. It constituted false worship. 
And this is the issue of division between the Jews and the Samaritans that is most significant. This is why they had no dealings with one another and why their mutual hatred ran so deep. And it is into this context that Jesus breaks in and crosses a grand canyon-sized gap and asks this woman, can I have a drink of water? And as a result, this outcast Samaritan woman is just proper shocked. But Jesus says that if she understood, she would have asked him for a drink, and he would have given her living water. Now, again, uh, the f- this phrase to us might sound very odd and spiritual, but the phrase living water would have been something the woman was familiar with. Now, living water was a phrase used to describe flowing water or spring water that would come out of the ground or flow from a rock face. This is in contrast to stagnant well water, and so living water was seen as superior to water that just sat in a well. So the woman is confused as she genuinely would have wondered where this newcomer would have known of a better place to fetch water from. But as we will see, Jesus is using an understood physical reality to communicate a spiritual idea. Now, Jesus did the exact same thing with Nicodemus. Jesus used the phrase born again, a phrase used within the context of Pharisaical traditions, to describe a, a spiritual reality. And similar to Nicodemus, the, the woman doesn't understand. She is thinking in terms of physical things when Jesus is referring to spiritual realities. And her confusion is also laden with irony, which I find rather humorous. Because she asks him in verse 12, are you greater than our father Jacob? Um, Yes. (laughs) In fact, he is greater than Jacob. And note how she says our father. Our father Jacob, referring to the Jews and Samaritans' shared ancestry. And again, she is focused more on physical things than spiritual. But next, in verse 13 and 14, Jesus lays it out more clearly that he is speaking of things that are spiritual and supernatural. Here he explains that just drinking water, ordinary H2O, will just leave you coming back for more. But the living water that only Jesus can give quenches our thirst. And that water will become a spring welling up to eternal life. Here it is clear that Jesus is referring to things in the realm of the supernatural. But again, the woman at the well is locked into her physical needs being met. Now, we don't know if her response was genuine or dismissive or even borderline sarcastic. But regardless, it shows that what, desire, her, her, that what she desires up to this point is to avoid coming back to the well for more water, just as I would like to avoid keep stopping and drinking more water myself. You get thirsty doing this. But what is Jesus referring to here? What is this living water that Jesus is speaking about? And what does it provide for those who receive it? The living water that Jesus gives is the Holy Spirit. Here, John begins to develop this idea that Jesus is the provider or giver of the Spirit to those who believe in him. But in this text, Jesus describes not who the Spirit is, but what he provides for those to whom he is given. Now, in this literary unit, back in chapter 2, John has been tracing along this theme of water. Back at the wedding in Cana, water is put in the purification vessels and then turned into wine. Jesus tells Nicodemus in chapter 3, verse 5, that unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. And in our text last week, a dispute arose over purification about water baptism. From this, we see that part of what the image of living water is meant to communicate is that the Spirit provides purification from sin for those who believe in Jesus. But in the immediate context, Jesus explains that the Spirit is the one who alone gives us full satisfaction for our spiritual thirst. But what is more perplexing to me is what Jesus says in the rest of verse 14, that the water he gives will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. 
the image of living water transforms into something that truly appears alive as it replicates and grows. But what this points to is what the Spirit does in the heart of the Christian. Those who take a drink from the water of Christ do not just receive a portion, but an overflow of the Spirit. The Spirit becomes in the Christian a new spring, a new source from which living waters flow. Every Christian is a spring of water from which others can take a drink and receive eternal life. That's incredible. That Jesus, the original source of living water, transforms us by the Spirit to become the means by which others can drink and so be saved. This is what our lives are meant to be. Do you realize that, brothers and sisters? Later in John, Jesus further explains this reality when he says in chapter 7, verse 38, that whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Do you realize that your born again, new heart is a river of living water from which others ought to be beckoned to drink? We must be aware of this. We have to be aware of this. We must remember that we possess the only thing that can satisfy the thirsty, as we all once were. And I think this begs the question, how would you describe the spring of living water flowing from you? We ought to desire that we would be so awash in the Spirit that we are just a gushing fire hydrant of eternal life producing water. But sometimes, if we are honest, it's more like the drip of a leaky faucet. Or maybe at best like that of a water fountain. But the image here is a spring that is welling up, bubbling over. It is out of the overflow of our own hearts that others are able to drink. Pray that the Spirit would produce this overflow in us and would change us that we would not selfishly keep the living water of Christ to ourselves, but freely share it. But as we saw before, this woman doesn't get it yet. She doesn't see her need, which, funny enough, is exactly why Jesus says what he does in verse 16. Because it really does seem like a strange turn of the conversation. Sir, give me this water. Go get your husband. It really seems like such an odd thing to respond with. Uh, But what is Jesus doing with this statement? He is beginning to point the woman to her thirst, which she has not yet acknowledged. But what, what is that thirst? What is the thirst which the Spirit quenches? Yes, it's spiritual thirst. We get that. It's spiritual thirst. But what is that spiritual thirst for? So so what is spiritual thirst? Is it a hidden or dormant longing relationship with God? Is it the God-sized hole in every person's heart that only Jesus can fill? I don't think so. Is it just the desire for true and full satisfaction? It certainly doesn't include less than that, but spiritual thirst does include more than that. Our spiritual thirst is our greatest need, our thirst for forgiveness. We thirst for forgiveness, restoration, reconciliation. It is our desire to attain the elusive goal of right standing with God, a goal that cannot be attained in ourselves. But as we see in our text, it is a thirst or a need that we are not even aware of. And so we need to be made aware of this need. This is what Jesus does with the Samaritan woman, but in supernatural fashion. But when we also share the gospel with others, it is, it is part of our job to point them to their need so that the Spirit would open their eyes to their great spiritual thirst, which only Jesus can quench. So if you are here and you are not a Christian, 
My desire is that you would know that you have a thirst, a need for forgiveness and reconciliation. And that thirst can only be satisfied through faith in Christ. And it is in the gift of the Spirit of God who produces the true satisfaction and peace that total forgiveness provides. I pray that God would enable you to see that thirst for forgiveness and see that, that satisfaction only he can give you. This is why Jesus moves the conversation in the direction he does here in verses 16 through 18. He addresses the sin that has made a mess of this poor woman's life. And, and we don't know the history. We don't know how many times she's been widowed or how many times she was divorced. But Jesus supernaturally reveals to her the nature of her messy past and the reality of her sinful present as she is living with a man who is not her husband. Now, her response is, really displays her shock and how flustered she is. Now, you might assume that it would be expected in the ancient world or in this culture that if a stranger revealed this kind of personal information about you, you would conclude that he is a prophet. But this is truly a wild thing, especially for a Samaritan to say. Remember that the Samaritans rejected all of the Old Testament except for the Pentateuch. That's Genesis through Deuteronomy. And in verse 25, we see that the Samaritans were also expecting a Messiah to one day come. And they would get this from Deuteronomy 18, which speaks of a prophet like Moses that the Lord would raise up. But from Deuteronomy 34.10, it says that no prophet has arisen in Israel like Moses, which they took to mean that there would be no other prophets after Moses except the Messiah. So for this Samaritan woman to, actually, this is why they rejected all of God's revelation, because no other prophet was recording legitimate revelation. So for this Samaritan woman to call Jesus a prophet is a massive compromise in her worldview. She is faced with a truly disorienting dilemma, and she does not know what to do about it. And here we also have another apparent non sequitur. She changes the subject in a very relatable way. She does not want to talk about her sin and instead tries to engage in a theological debate. So she brings up the major theological difference between Jews and Samaritans, which is the place where Yahweh ought to be worshipped. This is such a human thing. We've all done this. Someone asks you that question you don't want to answer, so you just ignore it and try to move on. Uh, like someone asks you, how do you think your relationship with your father has affected your relationship with God? And you're just like, how about the Bombers game? <laughs> uh, <laughs> people do this. And it happens often when we try to have spiritual conversations with non-Christians. You want to talk about the gospel and they just want to argue politics. You want, you're trying to point them to the cross and they just want to debate you about evolution or whatever thing they can't believe God calls sin. But Jesus so perfectly sidesteps the debate and addresses it in gentleness, but remains uncompromised and clarifies the truth while still pointing her to her need for, the, for true faith in God. Jesus says in verses 21 through 22, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. Now, these are two sentences that are theologically loaded that I will only briefly address. Taking verse 22 first, we see that Jesus gently but clearly tells her that the Samaritans are false worshipers of God. That's tough to say. They worship out of ignorance because they have rejected and twisted God's revelation. Salvation is from the Jews. Here Jesus is affirming the special chosenness, the election of the Jewish people. That it is to them that God has revealed himself. And it is from the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that God declared the salvation of the world would come, ultimately provided in Jesus. And this is true both before and after the cross. We are indebted to the Jewish people. We must remember 
This is a Jewish book written by Jews. So Jesus, as the perfect Jew, unapologetically affirms the primacy of the Jewish people in God's plan of salvation as the chosen people of God. But what Jesus says in verse 21 would have been a shock to both Jews and Samaritans alike. What Jesus says here represents a major shift in redemptive history that he has ushered in in his coming. Jesus' coming has ushered in a time when true worship of God no longer requires the boundary of a specific location. His death and resurrection will make even the temple obsolete, which is just an absolutely wild thing for a Jewish man to say, especially to a Samaritan. Now, what Jesus says here foreshadows what is understood as a shift in what constitutes true spirituality, the fundamental change of which has been summarized this way, that the old covenant was primarily a come-and-see religion, while the new covenant is primarily a go-and-tell religion. Old covenant, come-and-see. New covenant, go-and-tell. In the Old Testament, the message was, Come and look at the people of Israel. Look at their their laws that separate them from the nations. Look at the temple and the palaces of their king. See how God has blessed them. But now, in the church age, ushered in by Christ, we are instead commanded to go and tell and make disciples of all nations. And this has major implications for how we go about our mission as the church to make disciples. Because one of the most consistent failures of the church throughout the 2,000 years of church history is to forget that this shift has taken place and to fall back into a come-and-see mentality. The church has no geographic center. No city, no place is more holy than another, despite what many throughout the church's history would have told you. There are no sites to which we should need to make pilgrimage, God has, set his, has not set his place of worship in Moscow or in Constantinople or in Rome. And I can definitely tell you firsthand, it isn't Dallas either. Come on. Sorry, Bubba. <laughs> but things have not really changed all that much over the last 2,000 years. Whereas back then, cities vied with one another to have the biggest and grandest cathedrals, Today, different churches are still given to the unproductive work of building bigger and better. The only thing that's changed is the architecture. All of this demonstrates a lapse in understanding that the church is called to go and tell and not to create little kingdoms to attract people to come and see. Let's face it, folks. We cannot attract people into the kingdom of God. We cannot attract people with the best facilities and the best band and the best fun family activities. None of them points to their spiritual need. In fact, it often distracts from it. But don't get me wrong, this is not not an error that's unique to thousand-person churches with million-dollar budgets. This is not just a them problem. This is an us problem, too. We can just as easily fall into this pattern of thinking. I pray that if Trails were ever to have our own building, that we would not look to that building as the end-all, be-all of our ministry. Because many churches, that if their building burned down, they would cease to exist. But even without a building, we can have a view towards the gathering of the church on Sunday with a come-and-see mentality. As go and tell people, we must recognize what is the primary evangelistic venue of the church. It isn't the gathering. We desire that non-Christians attend our gathering, and we do proclaim the gospel evangelistically every week. But we should not view the Sunday gathering as the church's primary work of evangelism in the week. It is the life of the scattered church in the world that should be the primary venue of the church's evangelistic work. 
And I say this because I've been a part of churches that do not preach the gospel to their friends and family because they think it is just the job of the preacher. Or they think that their only role in sharing the gospel with others is to invite them to the Sunday service. Now, don't get me wrong. Please do not confuse, because please invite as many people as you can to join us on Sunday. But do not do that in lieu of sharing the gospel with them yourself. The gathering of the church is primarily for the church. Its primary purpose is to equip and to edify in order for the saints, that's you guys, to be about the work of ministry in their lives throughout the week, serving their neighbors and telling them the good news of Christ. Here Jesus says that true worshipers worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Now, this is not referring to the means by which we worship, which would be the Holy Spirit, capital S. I do believe that the ESV translators are correct here by translating this as spirit, lowercase s. Jesus is describing not the means, but the manner of true worship. He is answering the question, how? How ought true worshipers worship God in spirit and in truth? And this is not referring to two separate ideas. Jesus uses two words to describe one idea. It's not as if you could worship in spirit and then also worship in truth. The manner of true worship is done in spirit and in truth, meaning that true worshipers worship God according to how he has revealed himself. True worshipers worship God according to how he has revealed himself. This is how the Jews worshipped what they knew, because they alone were given God's self-disclosed revelation. So, so too, we are commanded to worship God according to the relationship he has given us. And again, the implications to that statement alone are just huge. But for our time today, it reiterates the point to us that God cares about the manner in which he is worshipped. And even though that no longer includes a specific geographic location, it does include that we understand what he has commanded us to do. We are commanded in this age to go and tell, to seek true worshipers as the Father is seeking such people to worship him. This is the spiritual food that Jesus refers to when his disciples return. Just like Nicodemus and just like the Samaritan woman, the disciples think that Jesus is referring to physical food when instead he is speaking about spiritual realities. His food is to do the will and to accomplish the work of the Father. As imitators of Christ, our food is no different. We are to be about the work of our master. If we only had the eyes to look up and see the plentiful harvest that awaits us in the wheat field of our reaping Messiah. There is a promise. There is a promise of a bountiful harvest in the field. And this is the harvest for which we have not labored. We are called into the work that God is already at work accomplishing. Others have sown so that others may have the joy of reaping. But all of God's laborers get to rejoice together in the work of the harvest. This is a beautiful work of joy, but it is hard work. And I am so grateful to know that many of you are about the business of your Father, like Jesus, already receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. I am grateful for the amazing stories of God's grace as you faithfully serve your friends and family members. I am encouraged by seeing new faces and by every story of gospel proclamation. But I urge you to continue on in perseverance. Invite people into your homes. Invite your friends to your small group and serve them faithfully. However, I, I also recognize that many of us struggle in this area of obedience. And I know that I am speaking to myself here as much as anyone else in this. Now, most often, 
Christians cite fear as the reason that they do not share their faith with others. Yet, I do not believe that it is too much fear, which is the primary reason we do not share our faith with others. Rather than too much fear, it is not enough love that is the reason that we often remain so silent. Now, why do I say this? Well, because it says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, that perfect love casts out all fear. Now, pray that the Spirit would fill us with greater love. Love for Christ and love for people. Love should motivate us to preach the gospel out of the overflow of the Spirit's work in us. For it is not lack of fear, but the gushing overflow that turned this out, this gushing overflow of love that turned this outcast woman into the unlikely evangelist that she became. After revealing himself as the Messiah to the woman, she returns to the town, telling her story to them and beckoning them to see for themselves. It is amazing to me that in verse verse 28, John makes a note of the fact that she left her water jar behind. Now this little phrase, this seemingly superfluous detail, demonstrates a powerful reality. That she was given the understanding of her true spiritual thirst no longer concerned for the satisfaction of her physical thirst. She leaves her water jar behind, having found the satisfaction of her greater thirst after drinking from the waters of Christ. And we cannot undersell the dramatic nature of this reversal, the the shift, the, the, the twist of the trajectory of this woman's life. This woman was an outcast, ashamed of her broken past, She went to fetch her water at noon to avoid harsh judgment of the women of Sakaar. She would have likely loved nothing more than for everyone to forget her life. But having encountered the satisfier of all her longings, what does her testimony become? What is her testimony? She leaves behind what she looked to quench her thirst and runs towards the people she once avoided to remind them of the exact thing she'd wish they'd forget. Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Hey, everyone, who has made me an outcast? You know all that stuff that I feel most ashamed about in the entire world? Well, this stranger knew all about it, and he still loved me anyway. Can this be the Christ? And what is the result? People encounter Jesus, the giver of living water. Many Samaritans, many Samaritans from that town believed in him. Defying all expectations, this woman became the most unlikely of evangelists, leading to the salvation of many people who once regarded her little. And it is in the unlikeliness of her being chosen by God to become this successful evangelist that John places this story here in his gospel. This woman defies all our expectations. Now, so far in the story, who's the man we would have picked to be the successful evangelist? Probably Nicodemus. Definitely not this woman. But no. God uses the weak things to shame the strong and uses the outcast woman from an outcast people to bring about the salvation of many. And we see that from this, that this is actually a partial playing out of what John has already written in the introduction of his book. He wrote in chapter 1, verse 11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. The Jewish people and their leaders, those who should have received him, did not receive him. Instead, God uses, of all people, this unlikely woman, an outcast from an outcast people, these Samaritans, 
He gives them the right to become children of God. Let this be a reminder to us of those whom we think are too unlikely to ever be used by God. We must not limit our evangelistic efforts to the people who in our estimation seem to be the people most likely to believe in Jesus. That is not what we are called to do. Let this also be a reminder for us to be about the hard work of crossing boundaries of division, whether socially or ideologically. We are called to share the gospel with those who disagree with us strongly on matters of importance and with those who might be very different from us. Do not limit the work of God by our human expectations. We never know who, how God might use the most unlikely of people to bring about revival in our city. But isn't it so true that we are so often tempted to think with these kinds of limitations of who God can save or use for his glory? For example, say, say there's a single mom on your floor in your apartment building that you know takes her kids to drag show story time you might look at that kind of person and say, there is too much difference and potential animosity between us for me to ever think of trying to build a relationship with her. Why? Because that kind of person hates Christians? So what? People who, get, who hate Christians become Christians all the time. Who knows what God might do? God could use another unlikely, seemingly unremarkable woman to bring about gospel transformation for an entire community. The Samaritans hated the Jews and vice versa. And Jesus didn't reveal himself to the mayor of Sychar or even some other Samaritan with reasonable influence or good social standing. Jesus chose to reveal himself to this lone woman at a well to transform her into the unlikely evangelist she became. Can we not pray that God would do the same for others in our lives? Because look at the bountiful harvest she was given to reap. Many Samaritans believed because of the woman's testimony, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior, not of the Jews, not of the Samaritans, but of the world. May our Savior's name be proclaimed throughout all the world, to all peoples near and far, to those hostile and to those friendly, that all who thirst may be quenched at the spring of living waters. Father, I pray that you would do just that. That you would galvanize and stir up our hearts. That there would be a burning desire in our belly to proclaim the good news of Christ to those who love us, to those who hate us, to those who don't want nothing to do with us. May we be so known by our desire to preach the gospel that we would have a reputation for doing so. May we be marked out in this city that we are the people that don't shut up about Jesus. And Lord, may we look beyond human limitations, that we would not be pessimistic or bitter, but open our eyes to see the bountiful harvest that is there if we just had eyes to see it, to go out and to enter the field and reap it. Father, that we would not look with human limitations thinking that some are just too far away, some are just too unlikely, some are just too disagreeable for us to ever have a conversation or to build a relationship with them. Who are we to say what you can do? Father, help us to see this. That we would not have silent mouths, 
but that we would recognize the beautiful privilege that our hearts are now springs of living water from which others can take a drink and find their thirst quenched forever. So in Christ's name I pray, amen.